Welcome to the Lunch Break Bible Study. 20 minutes so that you can be in the Word today, even if the only time you have is just your lunch break. I am Pastor Frank here in Kansas City, Missouri, in the good old United States of America. And I have to say good old United States of America because you didn't know this, but I am an international phenomenon. Today's shout-out goes to Juline all the way in New Zealand, which is super cool to me that someone on the complete opposite side of the globe is able to listen to this over the power of the internet, and uh, that is super, super cool to me. So, hello, Juline, and uh, welcome back to the Lunch Break Bible Study. We are continuing in the Gospel of Mark today. Mark, uh, I believe we're in chapter 6, if I'm not mistaken. Got to find it here. My notes are very long. Yes, chapter 6. And Jesus has just fed the 5,000 with uh, just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And we talked about all of the connections there between Jesus and Moses in the Old Testament. Moses, the one who provided for the people in the wilderness, and just as Jesus was providing for the people in the wilderness here in the feeding of the 5,000. And we're going to make another connection with Moses in today's lesson, after the disciples pick up all the leftovers from this meal, 12 baskets full of bread and fish, uh, after starting with just a few loaves and a couple of fish. It says, verse 45, immediately, because there's never time for anything in Mark's gospel, they're always on the move, immediately Jesus told his disciples, get into a boat and go on to Bethsaida, and I'm going to stay here with the crowd and I'm going to dismiss them. And then after leaving the crowd, he goes up on a mountain to pray. So the disciples get into the boat, and they go out onto the lake while Jesus is not with them. And they get out into about the middle of the lake, and they're having problems because they can't sail. The wind is blowing against them, so they're kind of straining at the oars, um, you know, just fighting this boat, trying to get it across uh, the Sea of Galilee there. And it says here that about the fourth watch of the night, so very, very late, almost morning, it says that he went out to them walking on the lake. And this word that's translated walking in the Greek comes from the word peripateo, which means sort of walking around, or we would say in English maybe uh, strolling or, uh, you know, uh, sauntering. You know, he's just sort of casually walking as if this is really no big deal. Um, it's not, it's, it's nothing to him to just walk across the water. And it says also that he's about to pass by them as if he sees them on the lake rowing with the oars. And he just says, well, I'm just going to walk on ahead and they'll catch up to me whenever they're ready, which is kind of, which is kind of amazing. Um, and he was about to pass them by, but then they see him out on the lake. It's the middle of the night. The wind is blowing and they're straining at the oars and they look out. And can you imagine, you know, there's, there's a moon out and you see, uh, you see someone walking on the water, uh, passing you up in the boat. And in verse 50, it says they, they cry out because they see him and they were, they were terrified. So they were afraid. And he was about to pass them by. And then in verse 49, it says they see him walking there. They think, they think he's a ghost. They think he's some sort of spirit, some sort of supernatural entity. They don't think he's an angel because in verse 50, it says they're terrified. They don't know what to make of it. They're really afraid. But immediately, again, immediately, uh, Jesus speaks to them and says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. So he comes over and he climbs into the boat with them in verse 51. And as soon as he climbs into the boat, the wind dies down. And it says the disciples were completely amazed because they didn't understand. They had not understood about the loaves, about what Jesus had just done 
uh, feeding the 5,000. They didn't understand that. It says their hearts were hardened. So we have two words here in this section of Mark's, Mark's gospel that we've seen before. We've seen people being afraid of Jesus, and we've seen people being amazed by Jesus. And both of those words have positive reactions and negative reactions. So I'm going to ask you to slow down a little bit uh, as we go through this, because we have to get our minds back to things that we've seen before in Mark's gospel. And part of that is my fault because I'm going through this so slowly, but please bear with me and, and trust me, just follow along. So the first thing is that people are afraid of Jesus. And you'll remember in Mark's gospel, there's a good way to be afraid and a bad way to be afraid. So sometimes when people are afraid of Jesus, they reject him. And that's what happened when Jesus was with the Gerasenes, when the man who had the many, the legion of demons in his, uh, that had possessed him had taken control of his body. Jesus cast those demons out and the demons go into this uh, herd of pigs, which then go down into the water and, and drown. And the people of that region, they were afraid of Jesus and they asked him to leave. They rejected him. They wanted nothing to do with him because they were, they were afraid of him. But then other times people are afraid of Jesus and they receive him and they are, uh, that's, that's a different kind of fear. It's related to the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament, sort of a fear in reverence and uh, being awestruck and being, uh, feeling like you were in the presence of something great and holy. And that's the thing that happened the last time the disciples were in a boat with Jesus. When he calmed the storm with a word, they were afraid. But it was a fear in the sense of awe and reverence because they had seen him exercise authority that only the creator has. Only the father has this kind of authority. So they were afraid of him in, in that awestruck way as opposed to the garrisons who were afraid of Jesus in, in a terrified way and wanted nothing to do with him. So the same thing is true. You have the, the fear has a positive and negative reaction. And the same thing is true on being amazed by Jesus. You have a positive and negative reaction. Because sometimes when people are amazed by Jesus, they reject him. And this is what had happened in his hometown when he had gone back to Nazareth. He had gone to the synagogue and he was preaching there and people were amazed. And it was more of the sense of, this is amazing. Who does this guy think he is? Remember, because isn't he just, you know, isn't he Joseph and Mary's son, the, the carpenter's boy? Right? Who does he think he is? He's going to come in here and start teaching us with authority. So they reject him there. So that's just like you can reject Jesus out of fear. They people, Those people were rejecting Jesus out of amazement. And just as you could uh, be in fear of Jesus in a positive sense and, and sort of a sense of awe and reverence, you also could be amazed by Jesus in a positive sense. And that's what happens when Jesus goes to Capernaum, because the people of Capernaum hear Jesus talk, and their amazement is more of the sense of, hey, this is amazing. Nothing like this has ever happened to us before. Isn't this wonderful? So now that we've gone through that little exercise of going back into the first five and a half, first six chapters of Mark's gospel, now we're ready to come into this section because what happens here is that Mark puts both of these concepts together, being afraid and being amazed, and he puts them together in this very, this one passage that he describes for us of Jesus walking out to the disciples on the water. Because people are afraid of Jesus and they reject him when they don't understand what he is or where his power comes from. 
The disciples in our passage here think that Jesus is a ghost. They're terrified because they don't know what the power is. Jesus has to identify. You, you notice that only after Jesus identifies himself does he tell them to take courage. They don't understand where he's coming from. They don't understand what this power is, and they are really terrified of it. But it's only after Jesus reveals who he is, they find courage in his presence. And related to that is that the disciples now were amazed. They have moved from the wrong kind of fear of Jesus to the right kind of amazement. So they've moved from a fear that rejects Jesus to an amazement that receives him. And it's possible because now they understand something that they didn't understand before. Right Up to this point, their hearts had been hardened, the meaning they were unaware. But now they understand what it meant that Jesus provided bread. The same things we were talking about in our last episode, this they finally understand. They understand the connection between Jesus and Moses. Because Moses had divided the people into their hundreds and fifties. He had provided bread in the wilderness to eat. And now Jesus, right, now Jesus is doing the same thing. In addition, Moses had also led the people through the, through the sea on dry ground, and Jesus was walking on top of the sea as if it were dry ground. Jesus is Moses to a much greater degree than, than anything imagined before. Jesus was the fulfillment of what Moses had prophesied back in Deuteronomy. So if you remember, we're going to go a little flashback here to the Old Testament. Uh, if I had, uh, if I had fancy, uh, uh, sound effects I would play like a you know like a, a wavy uh, sparkly sound effect for you but I, I don't have anything like that but Moses had prophesied back in Deuteronomy so you remember Moses leading the people of Israel as they leave Egypt and Moses doesn't go into the promised land with them uh, rather he is left outside of the promised land but he prophesied before he sent the people in to the promised land he says the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You have to listen to this guy when he comes. And we saw in the Old Testament that Joshua, who came after Moses, Joshua who was anointed by Moses to be the new leader of the Israelites, Joshua sort of fills that prophecy out. He had been like Moses in kind of a limited way because he too had led the people through water on dry ground. Uh, Joshua had led the Israelites across the Jordan River. The river, the Jordan River in its flood stage even, had been split and the Israelites crossed over that Jordan River on dry ground just as Moses had crossed the sea on dry ground. So Joshua filled that prophecy of Moses in kind of a limited way, but it wasn't complete. But Jesus, on the other hand, who divides the people into the fifties and hundreds, who gives bread in the wilderness, who travels through the sea as if it were dry ground, he is more Moses than even Moses was. And he's going to give a deliverance greater than even Moses gave. It's going to be a deliverance from sin and death. And what about the people who don't understand him, like the disciples who were in the boat? See, they don't understand who Jesus is because their hearts had been hardened just like Pharaoh's heart had been, had been hardened because he didn't understand who Moses was, that Moses was the servant of the Most High God. So you see, all these connections are coming, coming to the fore. And we only had 20 minutes last time, and I really wish we could have gotten into all this last time because this was important. It's kind of a one-two punch. Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then walks on the water. It really brings it all together with regards to who Moses is and who Jesus is as the fulfillment of Moses. Right. Also notice, too, 
we talked about this, I think, in the last episode, Joshua being uh, the, the Hebrew version, uh, being Yeshua, the Greek version of that same word is uh, Jesus, and that's how, you know, Jesus and Joshua have kind of the same name, so it really helps us to, to focus in on Jesus as, as the one who fulfills Moses' prophecy in a much greater way, in, in a complete and full way. But we have to move on now, because we are in verse 53 of chapter 6 in Mark's gospel, and they cross over. So the, the, the winds die down, the disciples are able to get over to the other side. Remember, they haven't rested yet. They, <laughs> this whole point of getting Jesus of getting of Jesus getting the disciples across the lake was it so the disciples could rest and that never happens um, the disciples never get a break and then Jesus puts them back in the boat they cross to the other side and verse 54 all right so this has gone on all night they they didn't even sleep at night because they've been fighting this this silly boat all the way across the lake when they get out of the boat people recognized Jesus and they ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever he was so the disciples never got the little retreat that they were supposed to get because Jesus was Jesus was doing his ministry. He had compassion on them like they were sheep without a shepherd. He was fulfilling that ministry of Moses uh, in, in, the, in its completion. So these people recognized in verse 54, they recognized Jesus and, and not just who he was, but what he was. Because unlike his own people back in Nazareth who saw Jesus come and refused to recognize him for what he was, the Son of God, these people do recognize Jesus for what he is. And it says they go around the whole region and bring on the bring the sick and, and, and everywhere uh, that, that Jesus goes, the sick and the people who were uh, demon-possessed were crowding around him into the marketplace, and they begged him to let them touch the edge of his, his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. So in Mark's gospel, a lot of this is a contrast between the people who recognize Jesus for who he is, people who have the fear of the Lord with respect to Jesus, people who are amazed at how wonderful he is and how wonderful their lives are now that he is in it, uh, versus those who are afraid of Jesus because they don't understand his power and those who are amazed by him because they, they think that he, is, uh, that he is claiming to be something he's not. And we're going to move on into chapter 7 now. And who are the people that don't recognize Jesus? Because we know the people, we know what it looks like when people recognize Jesus. They come from all the surrounding areas. They pile on their sick onto wagons and stuff. And they bring them to see Jesus. They put them in the marketplaces because they want Jesus to heal them. But what does it look like when people don't recognize Jesus? That are stuck kind of in that fear and amazement mode in the negative sense. And that's what we see at the beginning of chapter 7. The Pharisees and teachers of the law. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem also gather around Jesus. And now this is the third time that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have criticized Jesus' disciples. But they're not really criticizing the disciples. We have to understand that. What they're really criticizing is Jesus. They're really saying that, Jesus, how good of a teacher could you possibly be? How good of a rabbi could you possibly be if your disciples are not following what we expect disciples to do? He says, your disciples do not fast. Remember, that was the first criticism, is the disciples do not uh, practice fasting. And of course, Jesus says, you don't understand. Something new is happening here. This is the feast of victory for our God. Uh, this is not a time for fasting. This is, this is not a time for sadness. This is a time for celebration. The second time they said, your disciples are working on the Sabbath. 
And then Jesus has to remind them of something greater than the Sabbath was among them. Some He reminds them of, of King David and what King David had done and broken the uh, the law of the Old Testament in his need because, because God had a mission for David to be on. And Jesus kind of compares himself to that. And now they're going to ask this question. Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? So there's a lot going on here. And it looks like to me that this is a practice that started out with good, right? With good purposes, with good intentions, but it kind of took on a life of its own and became a way of judging people rather than caring for your own spiritual life. So let's just reading through this. Uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked him, why don't your disciples wash like our elders taught us to do? They're eating with unclean hands. Um, the ceremonial washing of hands and washing your hands, for that's not necessarily discussed in the scriptures. It's not something that the Bible says you have to do. It's a tradition that, that has arisen among the among the Israelites, and, and probably for good reasons. It probably came about for for good reasons. The idea here is uh, I'm gonna, I'm just speculating, right? I no idea, but uh, I, I think this is how something like this arises: is that they're thinking that they should wash their hands just in case they had come into contact with some unclean thing. Because very often in the Old Testament, when you read, it talks about what what to do when you uh, when you become unclean, and and very often it involves washing with water. So they had developed sort of this custom that you know I've been in the marketplace, we live among Gentiles, I don't know what 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 is clean and unclean. So every time before I eat, I'm going to wash my hands to sort of recognize that the possibility that I have been that that I have been contaminated by uncleanness and I'm going to wash my hands in this special way and that's just going to be just in case so I don't eat something unclean as the Lord has commanded me not to eat unclean things that's not a bad idea okay that's not a bad idea it, it's it's for your own personal benefit in those cases uh, in their lives that wasn't a bad idea but what happens is is that Instead of being something that is used by the people to maintain their own spiritual life and their own devotion to God, notice what happened. Something good that they instituted for their own spiritual care becomes a marker of righteousness that they use to judge other people. So something analogous, for example, would be something like this. So let's let's just say that you know your church has Sunday morning services like churches have had for thousands of years in the Christian church. But let's say that your church decided, you know what, it would be wonderful if we could also meet on Wednesdays. And some churches do that. Some, uh, some churches do meet regularly every Wednesday in addition to Sunday. And let's, say, let's imagine that your church decided it was going to start doing that. They wanted to give people a midweek worship service because you wanted to give them an opportunity to be refreshed in the middle of the week. Not everybody goes to that service. Okay, they've got other things going on, and that's not something that they can, that they can avail themselves of. But imagine that the people that did go to that service began to look down on the people who didn't, right? They would look down their nose on those who did not participate on a mid, in a midweek service like those who, uh, and they would think of themselves as, they would think of themselves as greater Christians. So the good thing that they were doing now has become corrupted. And instead of refreshing their faith, it's turned into an opportunity to judge one another. 
And I feel like that's a good analogy to help us understand what's going on here with the washing of hands. It's something probably that came out for very good reasons. And it's something that they felt was important for the uh, continuation of their faith when they lived among Gentiles. And it was probably a decent good practice and not a bad idea. But notice how it had become corrupted, such that it wasn't, for them, it wasn't about their own spiritual well-being. Rather, it had become a way that they could judge one another and who was a real disciple, who was a real person of the nation of Israel and who wasn't. And that's what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are getting on Jesus and his disciples about, is that you don't carry on this, what we have established as a marker of, of righteousness rather than a tradition that we find is, is helpful for our own spiritual care. Now, Jesus has no time for this. Um, and he, in verse 6, he says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, but we don't have time to, uh, to expose what Jesus is going to dig up in their hearts here in a second. Um, but again, fastest 20 minutes in, in podcasting. I'm Pastor Frank with the Lunch Break Bible Study. I hope you really enjoyed this. Uh, I really appreciate the likes and the shares. And, and uh, if you've got friends or family that are looking for, or looking for a, a Bible study to, uh, to do sort of onesie-twosie as, as often as these things get produced, uh, just let them know what's, what's going on here. Um, I'm here in Kansas City, Missouri. It is freezing cold. It is like the 85th of January here. Uh, you know, you, you, we're starting to feel like uh, Mr. Tumnus in the uh, in the Narnia books. He says, "Always winter, never Christmas." Have a blessed day.